0: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone.
1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is America's eating strategist, author of the best-selling book The One 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 Diet, nutritionist. Rania Batanya, uh, Masters in Public Health, and she is regarded as an expert in the field of nutrition and wellness uh, with an established practice that she has had. Uh, now she's actually moved, but she started out in San Francisco since 2001. Uh, Rania believes in changing lifestyles for lasting results. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rania. Thank you, Catherine. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you here. Of course, dieting is one of my favorite topics. Both personally and professionally. (laughs) But the one, one, one diet, as I understand it, is another, or isn't another get slim, quick, fad diet, but rather will give readers the tools they need to eat healthfully for life. So how do you do that in your book? Because I know so many people try to do that, and you know, we're all, whether you watch television, you go to the bookstore, there are thousands of diets out there, but somehow it doesn't or it isn't working for all of us. I mean, as a country, we're still fat and obese. Yeah, I mean, despite all of the nutrition and health
0: information and the hundreds and thousands of diet books out there, you're right. Our country is at this point, the most unhealthy it's ever been, we're the most unhealthy in the world, and more importantly, we are, we're not finding the right solution. Now, what the 111 diet offers is a simple formula for fast and sustained weight loss. And the word fast may seem like, you know, might seem similar to some other claims, but fast meaning your body keeps responding. It's gonna keep working for you once you implement the formula, which is simple. Basically, at every meal and snack, you eat one protein,
1: one carbohydrate and one fat. Uh, one protein, one carbohydrate, and one fat. Okay. Give us an example of what we would say typically eat for breakfast, which would represent each one of those categories, the one, one, one. Okay,
0: sure. So oatmeal is a great breakfast. Um, it's filling, you have the B vitamins, it's a healthy carbohydrate. So that would be your carbohydrate. Your protein could be a cup of milk on the side, and your fat could be a tablespoon of almond butter mixed in. So it's very
1: simple. What, what about those of us who don't eat oatmeal? Let's say uh, for breakfast, and I'm going to give you an example, and I'm thin because I, I'm very careful about what I eat. Yeah, so I'm five feet tall. I weigh 106 pounds. But for breakfast, I'll have a poached egg on toast with orange juice. How does that fit into that kind of a diet? Is that what I should be doing or not?
0: Well, there's a there's a little imbalance. So you've got two carbohydrates, the egg and the toast, and i uh, sorry, the... Um the toast and the juice, and then the egg is your protein. What you want to do is pick one of the carbohydrates. So let's say you're going to go with the slice of toast with your poached egg. You need a fat on the side. You could do um, a cheese. You could do avocado slices. You could do a little hummus and just run that meal out so it fits the
1: formula. Does that make it more satisfying to to, to us as well? I mean, you know, it's obviously you say it's good for losing weight and we're getting a well-balanced diet, but does it do we feel better when we eat that way
0: yes so there is some science to the formula basically when you create meals using this combination in the formula what's going to happen is the protein will stabilize your blood sugar so you're not having these high spikes up and down with your insulin the carbohydrates actually not only make us happy but they've got that component which is the fiber that we're looking for in most cases and it also has um, promotes um, serotonin production, which is a feel-good hormone. And the fat works to satiate our bodies. And so when you eat all three in the proper portions, which we discuss in the book as well, you are going to feel more satisfied. Without one of the elements, you're probably going to get hungry soon after you eat. And then also you might start craving one of those missing elements. So oftentimes you'll find people who are on a low carb diet and obviously the carbohydrate intake is very low. That's what they're going to start craving. And so then when they fall off, so to speak, they
1: just go overboard on that
0: missing nutrient.
1: We should be doing this at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Then we should be doing 111.
0: Yes. So 111 at breakfast, lunch, and dinner and in your snacks. And the reason why is because You want to create consistency in your body. You want your body to be receiving the same balance
1: throughout the entire day. But what about, and this is probably the big question, obviously, you've been asked this before, but... Let's say we're able to do that, and we're very diligent about doing the one-one-one breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks, as you indicate in the book. But Rania, what about portion control? It seems that that's a huge, literally, problem with most Americans, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, in our culture, well, you know, we we have exactly the formula you're talking about, but we eat too much of the protein, too much of the carbohydrate, uh, too much of each one of the one-one-ones. Mm-hmm. How, how does that work? Well, that's that a great work?
0: question, Catherine, and
1: you know, that is an area that is confusing for a lot
0: of people because you go to dinner and your plate, you're served with a huge portion of chicken and tons of pasta or rice or what have you. So portion control is important. In the book, we do detail not only lists of foods that fit each category, so a protein list, a carbohydrate list, and a fat list, but also the proper serving size. And I'll give you an example. Um, If you looked at a jar of of peanut butter, it says two tablespoons is a serving. On the one 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 diet, it's one tablespoon. So a lot of things are simplified down to one, so it becomes more easy and common sense for the dieter. One tablespoon of nut butter, one tablespoon of seeds, one cup of cereal, and then what I also recommend for for the readers is to focus on um, portion control, which is really background. important. That's my son. <laughs> he needs one one one. He is on the one one one. His breakfast is uh, very balanced throughout the whole day. He's
1: got a really balanced diet. So, all right, all right. Back to that. Okay, so he, you're a one 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 family, obviously, but uh, and you are telling people, or and it's very specific in the book about how much or what you should do in terms of portion control.
0: Yes, portions um, are really important. The goal is to lose weight. And we know that you know we do need to eat less to lose weight, but it has, there has to be some structure. It's not about restricting, or restricting, or eliminating a food group. It's about putting that structure in place so your body feels good, you're happy, and you're not depriving yourself. And then again, sticking with the portion sizes is it's just it's just an important element. But when you have all three pieces in your meal, you are able to eat less and still feel satisfied.
1: Well, what I like is the word structure because that certainly fits for me. Structure, not restricting, and they're yes. very different. So you're adding some structure. We need structure. I, I think, and you mentioned going out to eat. That's probably one of the biggest problems going out to eat because what do you actually do when you sit down and you go out with friends or family? And yeah, you can find the one 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 in terms of what you should order and then they put in front of you this plate that's for four people. I mean that four people should be eating, not just one person. So just practically speaking, what do you do? Well, the the
0: most valuable tool you can give yourself, especially when dining out, is to not go in hungry. If you're starving, you're going to overeat. So you've got a plan of action. Maybe you've looked at the menu online, or this is one of your favorite restaurants, and you've decided to modify the meal to fit 111. You just have to be smart, you know, it's going to be a larger portion. You don't have to finish it and especially like I said if you're not starving, you're more likely to eat a normal portion. So have half of your meal now and take the other half later for lunch or dinner the next day. You just have to be, you know, smart and conscious of what you're doing and then also avoiding the extra temptations. If you know you're going and you want a delicious pasta dish, skip the bread basket. If you want that glass of wine, skip the pasta. It's all about fitting the equation so that maybe next time you'll have the, the
1: wine or the pasta or the dessert. You know, it's about a trade-off, but it's it's a plan as well. And it's also being creative as you're describing it now and in the book as well. I mean, you have to be creative about what you put together. As you say, if you have wine, then you don't have something else. And that was my next question about alcohol. How does wine, alcohol fit into the one 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 diet?
0: Sure, wine, alcohol, any cocktail, those are all carbohydrates. So They contain sugar, and so that's how you're going to fit them into the equation. So let's say you're dining out at your anniversary and you're going to have a glass of wine. That's your carb. Your dinner will consist of protein, vegetables, and fat. So it could be a steak with um, grilled vegetables or a Caesar salad, and you'd get all three elements. you get the protein and the fat and the um the carb from the wine. So it, it, you can make it work. In fact, in the book, we have actually highlighted different, um, types of restaurants, steakhouses, sushi, Chinese, Thai food, and some healthy options
1: that fit the 1-1-1 formula. Let's take one of each one of those because I eat at all of those places. And I know my okay. listeners do too. The steak place, the Thai place, Asian food, um, Indian food, Mexican food. How does it fit into all of those? Those 111s fit into each one of those, the eating style.
0: Sure, let's start with Mexicans. So, you know, we're going there. We either want tacos or a burrito. Um, so we know that those two foods have a carbohydrate, It's the tortilla shell. So when you get there, you're going to have to skip the chips and, and dip, the chips and salsa. It's just you have to move past that and then get to the main meal. So you could have a burrito. Um, let's say you want a steak burrito. Oftentimes in that burrito you're going to have beans and rice and sour cream and guac. It's loaded. It's got triples and doubles everywhere. So slim it down. Make it one, one, one. The tortilla is your carb. The meat of choice, you could do vegetarian protein, beans. You could do steak, chicken. That's your protein. And then you pick one fat. So you could do cheese or sour cream or guac and then add tons of grilled vegetables, and that's going to fill you up. So there's a way to still dine out and date and celebrate, but making it work for you so you don't have to sit at
1: home anymore and eat foods different than your family or friends. Well, then what you have to do is, I guess, before you go out, sit down with the your book and take a look at it and be very conscious of what you're eating and how you're going to eat it and what the choices you're going to make. So you don't have to do it on the spot because sometimes that's difficult. I mean, you really yeah. kind of have to. Yeah. Then it can be more challenging maybe, when you're
0: yeah. just kind of rushing or you don't know where you're going. But oftentimes, you know, we have our routine and, and we know, you know, what we typically order and we just have to modify it. So again, chip the, you know, skip the chips and salsa. But if you go in and you want a margarita, though your best bet is a salad. So the margarita is your carb and you can have some protein and fat in your salad. Steak salad with avocado or you could do a chicken tortilla, a sal, uh, sorry, a chicken salad or a chicken soup with, um, avocado slices. There are so many ways to work the 111 diet, and the 111 formula into your diet, and like you said earlier, it's about getting creative. And one thing I tell readers and clients is the combinations are endless. I mean, you really can eat what you want at any given meal, but you also want to make it look like a meal. I don't want people to separate it and just have one of something. You can create meals. You know, in fact, yesterday I was working with a woman, and she said I really like. Uh, like chicken soup. I said, Okay, so that's your protein. Let's come up with a carb fat. And so I suggested pita chips and hummus and she was kinda like, Well how am I gonna eat all that? you know I said, Well just have the soup as your main and then dip the pita chips into the hummus and throw some carrots and red peppers on the side. She's like I never thought about it like that. You just have to think about food a little bit differently and it'll all click.
1: It'll just all come together. It's what you it's what you eat and it's also how you eat and you gotta do the how. I mean, that's exactly right, and I love that you just said that because
0: my philosophy and the philosophy in the book is I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I'm going to
1: teach you how to eat, and that's what it boils down to. So you see, eating, which is uh, I think is a, this is a really good way of looking at it, because it's what you eat, how you eat, and food should be pleasurable. And yes. But at the same time, you say in your book, it's fuel for our bodies. So we're doing lots of different kinds of things. We want to get energy. Uh, we may need to train, and I'm kind of quoting, I think, what's in the book, for an endurance event, lose weight, build muscle, mm-hmm. uh, lower cholesterol. So they're all different reasons for eating well or eating the one-one-one diet. But how can we take each one of them? And, and also you mentioned that if you do this and follow the diet, you'll help prevent chronic disease. So Yes. Um, how do we do all of that at once and do you kind of eat differently for each one of those goals or is it the same thing? It just all kind of comes together if you eat that way. Well,
0: everyone has a different, you know, lifestyle, genetic makeup, uh, food preference, eating lifestyle. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, does it look the same for everybody? No, I, I, you know, people like different foods. They, you know, it's, it's unique to everybody. But what is, you know, the consistent factor is balance and there's only three macronutrients in the world and they are protein carbohydrate and fat there's micronutrients vitamins and minerals but the macro that means the bigger nutrients that make up our diet again protein carbohydrate and fat so when you're training for an endurance event and trying to lose weight that can be challenging for a lot of people i have clients that say you know i'm training for a marathon i'm running 10 miles every saturday you know eight miles on Sunday and five miles a day, Monday through Friday, I'm not losing any weight. You can still look at your diet and say, where can I slim it down? Because oftentimes people are just eating too much of the wrong stuff. And so once you rebalance your diet and put that, say, missing element back into your diet, you're going to start seeing the results that you would have expected with your you know exercise lifestyle. Um, so that's something where you have an athletic person who's just having trouble losing weight. Um, with regards to disease prevention there are a few testimonials in the book and then you know i've worked with clients from their late 30s to their 60s who want to either prevent disease or or re- reverse any type of you know high blood pressure or high blood sugar reading
2: what and about the diet also does
0: that because it rebalances one critical hormone and that's your insulin and insulin is a fat storing hormone so once your insulin's balanced you feel so
1: much better and when you feel better, you make better choices. Rania, what's the most difficult client you've ever had? Perhaps someone who came into your office and you're thinking, I'm never going to be able to help this person, but you did. You know, the most difficult
0: client is somebody who doesn't think they can eat real food and eat the foods that they actually love. So when I'm designing the program for them and we're having our conversation together, they say, oh, I can have that, I can have that, I never thought about that, or I've forgotten about, you know, foods I really like, so when you have someone who comes in with the mindset of restriction, 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 and you want to liberate them and free them from all of those negative thoughts or, you know, negative food associations, typically guilt, that can be the biggest challenge because they are a little bit hesitant to eat carbohydrates if they haven't for a while, or they're still on the low-fat trend and they're not eating enough fats, or they don't really like too much protein. So anyone who has some fear related to any of those macronutrients then you're you're kind of uh it's a, it's a more it's more
1: of a challenge but once they get results it keeps them motivated. Yeah, then it takes on a life of its own you feel yeah. better you work better you live better you're doing all kinds of things better it helps i would imagine every area or aspect of your life so you have to be conscious when you're going to the grocery store and you're going to buy your foods that you incorporate or get the 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 right foods that incorporate the the 111 yeah and, and you
0: know if you're somebody who you know is you know can't eat organic or you have to buy packaged foods or freezer foods or fit your budget more you can work with it, and like you said, you just, you stock up, you get your proteins, your carbs, your fats, and we already do that, we just aren't combining them in the right manner. You know, we might be having, you know, um, simple example at night, we're having bread rolls and potatoes with our protein. Well, maybe you just, obviously you pick one and bump up the vegetables to feel full, and you've got a very
1: enjoyable meal. Well, I have two other kind of issues that, that come up, I, I guess, um well, in terms of my lifestyle and my friends, I mean, each decade, it seems, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like every decade you have to, one has to eat less and less because <laughs> yeah. uh, You mean as you get older or based on diet trends? Well, based on as you get older, right. I'll take, you know, because I've always weighed somewhat the same, but in order to maintain my weight, I have to eat less and less every decade. Yeah, I mean, over time, our metabolism does slow down, but you can always...
0: I say optimize your metabolism or take advantage of it by resistance training. That's very important, building and maintaining lean muscle mass, and then fueling your body consistently. So let's say in the past eating, you know, maybe 1,300, 1,400 calories worked for weight maintenance, but as you get older and let's say you're not exercising, you're going to lose muscle mass, so you're probably going to have to eat a little less just to maintain that lower weight. But I'm telling you, You know, you don't have to starve yourself to lose or to maintain. You have to find that proper balance, and that's what it boils down to. And, you know, another thing I want to tell listeners is, yes, we have portion sizes in the book, and one example is a cup of rice, one cup. Now, if you're not eating a cup of rice, don't bump it up, but that's your up-to limit. So there is some, you know, it is it is common sense
1: combined with strategy. What's the difference between men and women? Is there anything that you know stands out or that we should you know be aware of in terms of men on the 111 and women on the 111. You know, I think men generally make
0: heavier food choices, so they might have bagels every morning whereas a, a woman might have a slice of toast, you know. They like to eat differently. Maybe they want mashed potatoes at dinner and women would prefer a sweet potato, a baked sweet potato. Food preferences are different. Um now men also overeat more than women in general. So when they come down to that serving size um, and with that balance, they're going to lose weight, and they might lose weight at a more rapid rate, but nonetheless, it's unique to the individual. Um, I also think that when, when couples are working together and maybe the male counterpart is losing weight quicker, the women get a little bit frustrated, but they're in this together. And so they really just want to stay focused on the goal of living longer and healthier together.
1: How did you get into all of this? Because it said, you know, in in your bio, you started out in San Francisco, 2001. Did it come from a personal, for you, needing to lose weight or or just that you, you know, you got your master's in public health and this was the field you went into? Or how did this all start for you?
0: Yeah, so in college, I attended the University of Michigan and I was pre-med. And so I knew I wanted to work with people, helping them with their health and what have you. And so... When I graduated, I was going to take some time off and then apply to med school and take MCAT. But nonetheless, I said, you know what? Honestly, I said, do I really want to be in school for the next 10 years? And I realized that I didn't. And I said, well, what can I do? Because I always love fitness, nutrition, and skin. So I said, let me look into public health. So they had a nutrition program again at University of Michigan School of Public Health. I applied. I got in right away, right after undergrad, and I started my, you know, master's. Program and I loved it. I loved incorporating my science background with all of the lifestyle components that have to do with nutrition and the different life stages. You know, I you know you learn about everything. It's a continuing life cycle with with nutrition. We eat from the day we're born, and so when I started my career in San Francisco, it's a it's a primarily healthy demographic, active, younger um, group of people who were interested in just staying healthy and fit. When I started to look at their food logs, I realized that there was an imbalance. And the first thing a lot of people said to me was, I think I'm eating well, I'm just not losing weight. So once I looked at their food log, I would point out, I would actually circle like the proteins and put a P with it and the carbs and the C and then the fats with that. And you'd look at any given meal and there were doubles or triples or something missing. And so when I would communicate to them, okay, well, here's, you know, this is your food. Uh, here's one meal this is an example where there's a double or let's bring it down and then one 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 just came out it was just one 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 and so when they started applying that strategy and that formula they were losing weight and so I knew at that point for a lot of people calorie counting was not the answer grams of sugar or fat or what have you not really the answer because you just have to look at your diet and say well where do I correct the imbalance? And then the body falls into balance. And so for, for me, that was a winning strategy that I wanted to continue to share with my clients and then through the book now with everyone, readers everywhere and even internationally, the book is uh, published in, um, in French as well. So it's available in Europe. And so just having that opportunity to share that strategy with readers and dieters who have just been struggling. It's just so rewarding. and I would
1: imagine because, you yeah. know, as you say, even in Europe, and, and I travel in Europe a lot, and, I'm fine, and you can see that the Europeans are lagging a little bit behind us, not in a good way, getting, right. <clears throat> getting heavier, not eating well, and they seem to not be going in the right direction, sort of following us. And so I, I would imagine that your book would be popular, well, you talk about in France, but in other European countries as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, the Western diet in, influences and impacts – Countries around the world and obesity rates are increasing everywhere. Um, where it's a, you know more um, you know advanced modern society, it's we're fast paced. We're more sedentary. Technologies you know becoming more. I mean, it's present in every person's life. We're sitting on our phones. We're on you know social media or what have you. And so it, it the trends you know hopefully there can be a reversal in um, the overweight and obesity rates around the world, but. You know, what's also interesting with with the 111 diet, I worked at a bariatric clinic for two years and I was responsible for helping patients pre-op lose about anywhere from 5 to 10% of their current body weight. It was a requirement by their insurance plans to become healthier for the surgery. So when I was you know, meeting with these clients again, same thing. I look at their food logs. Of course, the goal is to lose weight, put them on the one, one, one formula, and they started losing weight and they were getting healthier. They were getting less dependent on their insulin, eventually off their insulin, blood pressure was over. And they would say, I've never, I've never been able to eat like this and lose weight because they've always been put on diets. And this is a group of individuals who are extremely overweight and obese. So for them to have this aha moment was incredible. And in fact, Many of the patients opted out of surgery, which maybe didn't fare well with the, with the surgeon, but that, the goal is to get the patients healthier. So whether they were trying to lose weight pre-op, opting out of surgery, or working with me post-op, I always use the 111 formula and it just changes your life. I mean, you're rebalancing every part of your internal body and then the mind, your mind changes. You you see food differently, and, and that's huge for a lot of people who have been struggling for so long. It becomes, like the title says, a simple formula, and
1: it's all about a strategy. It's all about a strategy, and the paradigm changes. Well, isn't this what uh, Michelle Obama is looking for? Yeah, so she's, you know,
0: really taking, uh, you know, she's making health and wellness a large initiative for our country, and you know, she's focusing a lot on the physical activity and then with regards to government programs, you know they're you know they redid the um, they have my plate um, which actually I talk about in the book it's slightly imbalanced <laughs> but there are <laughs> there are some new guidelines and um, it, you know initiatives that should help our country, but nonetheless, I think that for most people i'll be honest the government endorsed programs aren't really the solution there you know there's some impact from you know different political groups or what have you i'm not going to get into all that but we we know that we we need a solution our country's overweight and the more simple it is the better it is and i i really believe that between the bariatric population and anyone looking to lose 10 to 15 pounds the 111 formula will help get you there
1: well, uh, you've helped us today, and I want to make, we've, uh, we only have a few, uh, one minute left, actually, so let's, uh, I want to mention the book again, best-selling book, The One 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 Diet. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, Rania Bataina, Bataina, yep. um, and uh, very practical, very practical way of eating. Uh, it's a great book, but what about website, Where, what website can we go to so we can get more information about the book, about you, and about, you know, uh, what you're doing?
0: Sure. So uh the book's website is actually the title of the book, the one 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 diet dot com. Again, you spell out the word one O N E. And then also my consulting uh, firm, you can visit that website and you'll learn more about the book and other um, details, media and blogs and what have you. So that website is Essential Nutrition for You dot com. And again you spell out the four F O R. So those are two great uh uh you know areas to visit to learn more about the book and again you can learn about it through any online retailer there's also description and um, sample chapters there that you can kind of get into
1: great thanks so much for being on the show this morning you're helping america one pound at a time i guess thank you so much <laughs> have a good day thank you, you bye-bye yeah. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zock Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. We're going to take a short break uh, this morning, and we'll be back in a minute, so don't go away.
3: The
2: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine
0: Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is Evan Katz. Evan is the anger guy, the anger guy. He's been counseling angry men and teens since 1994. That's a long time, and his expertise is considered amongst the best in his field. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Evan.
3: Catherine, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Well, you are a licensed professional counselor and master addiction counselor. Uh, so you are an expert, obviously, in the field of counseling, but we're talking specifically about your book, Inside the Mind of an Angry Man. Um, how angry are I mean, what? How angry are we? I, I have my own thoughts about that, but how big a problem is anger management in this country,
3: Evan? It's huge. It's huge, and uh, something I use actually as a tagline is breaking anger's grip on America. I see it. Not just in the aggressive sense that we see on the streets today and what we read about, but in a very passive aggressive sense in our political system where there is a, a lot of lying by omission and lack of um, accountability and a lot of vagueness and so forth. Things that are very characteristic of a passive aggressive uh, person, which can also, of course, go to an entity. You're talking about passive-aggressive, and I
1: agree. There are a lot of passive-aggressive amongst us in terms of their anger, but there's also a lot of anger, at least as I see it, that's right out there. I mean, I don't know if what you're talking about, well, this would be in the extreme, but some of the, the, the killings at, at, at the malls, for instance, I'm thinking about the one where the person told the person to be quiet in a movie theater, and all of a sudden
3: somebody gets shot because of that. Is that what we're talking about? Well, certainly there is a lot of aggressive anger, and that is usually the type of anger that we uh, highlight or see, not just uh, culturally, but inside a family system or a home, and that is most of what I concentrate on. I mean, that's the squeaky wheel that would get the grease, if you will, Um, and what's interesting when the description that you gave, and unfortunately these people who shoot up schools and so forth, other than some of the, there's a few exceptions, particularly with the young people, but these are generally people I would describe as having passive anger, the type where they keep it in, uh, and they don't show anything, and they internalize and internalize and stay in resentment, and uh, the way that they cover that is by being quiet and uh, very compliant and uh... so forth but behind the scenes they eventually snap and what we see is that it's not impulsive for the most part now this gentleman in the not gentleman, but the man in the theater who uh... created a tragedy and shooting this other guy it does seem to be somewhat impulsive but let's face it he brought a gun into a movie theater you know there's there's a, a strong piece of defensiveness there And they generally set it up. You go back into their homes and they've got guns and ammo and some of them have booby traps. This is not uncommon. And what do people say when they interview them? Right. They say, well, he was, he was such a quiet guy. I can't believe it. He was a quiet guy. He
1: kept to himself. We thought he was a good neighbor, never caused any trouble.
3: Yeah. Right. And they're right. But this is a, uh, a passive anger, and these are the people who really snap. Now, the aggressive, uh, the aggressive type, while they're a real pain, and uh, I'm not talking right now about batterers per se, but people who yell and scream, and we see on the funny videos on the uh, YouTube, um, they actually are going to be the ones who don't really snap and cause the least physical you know, physical damage, if you will, because they're getting it out right there. Now, granted, they have no regulation, and I'm certainly not endorsing it, but there are different types of people, uh, or excuse me, different types of anger of which we all fit, and it's really on a continuum. We have anger, maybe aggression at home, but we might have passive aggression in our workplace, it all depends on the scenario, but we all have some, and there 's generally a primary within us well,
1: what is healthy anger and what is not healthy anger
3: let 's talk about that because, as you say, anger
1: is healthy it 's a way of getting out these emotions when, and, and, not, and and when you 're upset about something, but there has to be a balance in doing that, and I assume that's that 's what you, or, you know that 's what you talk about in your book, but that whole balance and how you work with people to help angry people balance their anger. That's kind of a general way of saying it, but let's get specific about it.
3: Sure. Uh, h- anger is, as you would know, as a uh, uh, social worker and someone in, in the field, it's really a secondary emotion. It comes from sadness, fear, and shame, if we want to put labels on them. And <clears throat> what happens is... Uh, unhealthy anger, if you will, is very chronic. It's something where people uh, could be typed as being trusting, uh, severely critical of themselves, which makes them critical of others. Um, they're the kind of people who aren't able to maintain relationships. Um, they tend to try and be perfectionists and always fail. And people usually will ask them, you know, hey, don't you think maybe you should get checked out for anger? These are folks who see the world, albeit unconsciously, they see the world as a dangerous place. And as a result, their perception of things that are happening is inaccurate. We call it a a cognitive distortion, or uh, another way to put it would would be a distorted perception. So they don't see scenarios in relationships and uh, particularly close relationships accurately. And as a result, their feelings are uh, unwarranted. They may have resentment or feel attacked when really they're not feeling attacked. And then as a result, they have a lack of regulation in terms of their uh, uh, way of dealing with it, and they uh, use defense mechanisms which, depending on their type, can go from uh, blame and uh, magnification on what the person did, uh, and basically saying, the angry person that is unhealthy basically says to the world, I need you to change so that I don't have to. That's you what
1: us the, they do.
3: You know, the, um, you're giving us the framework
1: for, for this kind of anger, but give us specific uh, characters who would fit into that, for instance, if we're looking at somebody who is, uh, well, let's take the case of domestic violence. You talk about somebody who's angry at themselves and has feelings of, uh, you know, shame, self-hatred, you know, feelings of failure, and they take it out on their
3: partner or their spouse. Is that a good example? That's one example. And the way that would work would be someone who would uh, see, we say, take it personally, right? But what's really going on is they're needing validation from outside themselves because they're not happy inside themselves, and I always say that happiness is an inside job, and that's what I tell most of the men that I work with. But when they need validation from the outside, in, even in that, let's say, in that domestic violence scenario, they're needing, uh, let's say, encouragement, or they're needing support, or to be praised for something that they feel is praiseworthy at that time. And if the other person doesn't give it to them, whether it be their child or their spouse or what, whomever, they feel invalidated because they needed this from the outside, even though they didn't realize it. As a result of that, uh, they feel slighted. And depending on the degree of uh, intensity, of really of their own opinion of themselves, will they react? Now, I've I've found most of the time that alcohol or drugs or addictive personality is very common with someone who actually goes to the extent of physical domestic violence. However, I work with mostly um, uh, high-performing, well-rewarded, money-making professionals Who do very well and are rewarded in their careers, but their lives at home are falling
1: apart. So if their lives at home are you talking about, they would tend to be not necessarily physically abusive, but verbally abusive, let's say because they don't have an addiction problem or they don't, an alcohol problem. And so you, these are your clients who come to you, uh, in your book as well as in your seminars, you talk about, you give them these tools or skill sets and methodologies for effectively Working through their anger, what specifically would you do? Let's say you're talking about a high functioning person who does well at work, who's the manager of a company, but he goes home, and we're talking about men, that's my, I guess that's the next question, difference between men and women, because mm-hmm. it seems primarily that you are talking about men and adolescents, which is an interesting combination, but, uh, so the person goes home, And they are abusive to their family, as you said, not necessarily just their partner, but their children. Um, So what are some of those specific tools you give them to to be able to uh, reconcile their anger in a positive
3: way? Well, I do it very differently than the typical anger management model. The typical model does give concrete uh, skill-based uh, information such as walk away or take a minute to count to 10 um, uh, or, or things of this nature. I really have found for long-term permanent change that it's the underpinning, the process underneath as to how that individual sees themselves relative to the world that causes their behavior. So, in terms of what I do is, and what I try to show them uh, are ways to, to see and prove to themselves through their behavior that their opinion of themselves or the way they treat themselves or see themselves is very poor. And show them and remind them that after every blow-up, after every blow-up, They feel shame. They feel bad. They feel, oh, my gosh, I did it again. And they have to sell themselves back in. They feel like imposters because this is going on at home, but it's not going on at work. So what I try and provide them first is an awareness. They've already taken the action by coming to me. So I try to provide them Awareness and then the acknowledgement of that is hard, because then they're going to go through justification and and rationalization and all these different pieces, uh, and I confront them very hard. Uh, these are people who can handle the confrontation, so after they are able to acknowledge and we're able to show them through their own behavior uh, proof that this is what they're doing. Uh, then we move into a phase of acceptance. And that's very difficult because now we're looking at a lifetime of behavior and that it likely came from being taught that they weren't really valued or they didn't get the the inside uh, sense of value from being brought up. And the acceptance phase is difficult and really takes time. But after that, we... Are able to, uh, see what's going on and I help them make healthy amends and help say to them, do not go home and say I'm sorry. <laughs> do not do this. How many times have you done that? What we do is set up a plan to change. So we use those skills that are very common, uh, in terms of not fortune telling as to what's going to happen and mind reading as to what somebody's done and, and you know, I've told them to put duct tape, duct tape on their mouth if they have to. But we put out a zero tolerance for inappropriate anger. And the skills, though, we we look at really as secondary and that they won't even have to come into play if they can start to really accept and really acknowledge that their behavior is what's causing a lot of this. One thing I would add to this is that it's, a, it's a, almost a, uh, a common denominator that you'll find, and I talk about this a lot in the book, that they will be more involved with being right than being happy, because being right is often as happy as they get. So I'll ask them, do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? And, of course, they'll say happy, but then they have to acknowledge that really what they're doing is trying to be right. Because they don't even know what happy is.
1: Well, this comes from personal experience, as I understand it. You yourself were were an angry man. I mean, this is how you were living your life. And so you lived the life of an angry man. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: I mean, what was the turning point for you? Well, for myself, I, I grew up with an angry alcoholic father He was a very powerful man. He was a uh, criminal trial lawyer, and I learned very young how to be cross-examined. Probably one of the reasons that I've been an expert witness for a while. It doesn't bother me. Um, and I grew up understanding that and truly believing that being not bad was as good as I was ever going to get. So as a result, I really started – I was able to understand what I try to teach today. And the way that I kind of hid that or tried to prove to myself that it wasn't true was by compensating with high performance. For me, that was in academics and in speaking and ways to hide it so that nobody would ever imagine that I was what I thought I was even though I wasn't to think that I really was a loser and everything that my father had kind of conveyed to me. And instead I had them looking at my behavior rather than who I really was. So as I got older, I became like my father. At one point he had a heart attack and being the good kid and still looking for the validation. uh, I was 35 now. Uh, I went to uh, where he was in Miami and, and tried to take care of him and I, uh, was the next of kin so I did everything I could and he, he did get better and he was, uh, sitting, uh, eating and so forth and, you know, he had to find the one thing wrong that it's really not even that I did but a decision that I made. Not to have his girlfriend who he was suing for running him over in his car get on the phone while he was still really sick. And uh, he went after that. And he said some very mean things. And we went at each other like the master and the protege. And I really, you know, had learned from the best. And um, I felt that I got the best of them. I got pushed out of the ICU and uh, got a call early in the morning. He was still angry. Was I was very upset that I had to go back, feeling like he won again. I push open the doors. I walk over. Nobody's there. And my father's dead. And the first thing I did, the first thought I had was, you know, my dad was right. I, I am a bad person. Look, I just had a hand in killing my father because I was the catalyst. And it took me a couple years to understand and let go of that idea of the blame and blaming myself and recognizing that I didn't kill my father. My father's anger killed him.
1: Yeah, it was his own and if rage I don't that, change. Sorry? It was his rage that killed him, That's uh, his correct. constant rage. Yes, that that uh, that caused his heart attack, and and not probably not just at that moment, but as you're describing it, it was his whole life. I mean, it sort of built up to that—that that right. anger, that rage that was churning inside of him that he tried to take out on you.
3: Eventually, he it, he killed himself. That's absolutely true, and. It was a big turning point for me to learn the things that I'm describing to you today. And I talk about all of this in my book and the, and the whole story. But um, a few years ago, I, uh, out of the blue, uh, well, I dedicated my practice to working on this. And I knew that there were other men like it. And then a few years ago, after running a very uh, wonderful practice, building a great reputation, I, I got whacked with cancer out of the blue. And if I had not had the skills and the understanding of what I had been teaching for so long, I'd probably be dead because it was a stage three and it was very, you know, What serious. kind of cancer was it? Uh, it's melanoma. And uh, in fact, I tell your audience, because I'm writing a second book now, uh, really a third. I was writing the workbook to this, but I stopped in writing a second book because uh, just three weeks ago, uh, it returned, and now it's a stage four. And I've learned over time that it's not about what happens. It's about how I deal with things. So I've taken this energy, this negative energy, and my view that the world uh, is really against me and that it's all an uphill climb, and turned it around to feeling blessed with a lot of energy and a lot of good thinking and speaking and finding out that Happiness being an inside job, the way I get it is by giving and by helping other people and by using my characteristics, which are very confrontive and straight up and very honest to people, using that same mentality and characteristics that, you know, I did before that kind of shut me up or, you know, sabotaged my relationships to build them. So now I'm using that again as best as I can. And I open up and I talk about how I feel and I talk about my fear and and all the different feelings that are involved and it takes away the the power of the emotional the um, feeling paralyzed emotionally and that's so important. When you you're know, Evan, I would think that illness. you know you
1: work so hard and you've done did so well in terms of understanding and, and this anger towards. You know your relationship with your father, and then helping others to, to manage their anger, and then you get diagnosed with the cancer, a melanoma. It would be, an it could be another uh, situation where you would get angry about that, like you know, the, the why me, and be really angry about I've done all this work and now what? And instead, you've turned it into a very positive way of, of dealing with well, with your diagnosis, and here again, helping other people by this this other second book you're writing.
3: Well, you you mentioned in the very beginning about healthy anger, and I have a lot of anger about this, and I had a lot of anger, a lot more early on that I didn't even realize, that my friends had to look at me and say, look, we're trying to help you, and you're pushing us out, and that's the kind of people that I hang out with today, and that is healthy anger. I mean, I'm mad at the cancer, but it was coming out on other people, and this is a, a typical thing that we do as, as human beings. Um, but, but of course I'm angry at it and, and I'm angry that this is happening. And I, I kind of get on myself when I say, why me? But, but I'm a human being. And today I allow myself to do that. I don't have to be perfect in even what I'm talking about and being ideal as to each of my steps through what I call the five A's of, uh, action, awareness, acknowledgement, acceptance, amends. I'm in a bad spot. And I have every reason to have a lot of fear. And all these other things that I would tell somebody else that they can have, I'm not different. And so this is healthy anger. And if I tried not to have it, I would be suppressing it. And if you don't talk it out, you're going to act it out. It's going to come out. And that's a lot of what we see in our teenagers because they don't have, they haven't mastered these these destructive uh, coping mechanisms yet as well as uh, older people have. So you're talking
1: about primarily, and we only have a couple minutes left, so we probably won't be able to get to the women, but you're talking about adolescents and their parents and, and men, but are women not part of this picture? I don't know if you can answer that question in 30 seconds, but...
3: I, I can give you a great, great picture. I address it very briefly, but directly. You know, i focused on men because I don't truly know the experience of women. And this is a very, if you will, intimate, uh, very personal experience. And I didn't want to try and describe something that I didn't know. I wrote the book when I was very sick the first time. Because I wanted to leave something for my daughter and my profession. Fortunately, I lived. So I had to find a different way to do it. And now I do a lot of speaking.
1: And, and we're going kind of to leave it at that but the, i mean you did yes now you've explained it's a very personal personal book a personal experience and you're a man and so that's where it comes from let's yes. just i want to because uh, we do have a minute left i want to mention uh the book again inside the mind of an angry man evan katz and you can get the book or buy the book online bookstores everywhere uh and just give us a website to go to and then we have to say goodbye Okay, and thanks again for having me. This is great My website. The show. Yep.
3: is uh theangryguy.com. It's uh com. Not the angry guy anymore, the Got it.
1: Evan, I wish you all the best and thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate it and I hope that uh, something I said might have helped at least one person out there. I'm to sure it I... will,
1: more than one person. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We
0: hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7
3: a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel.